To open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we're going to be looking at John 16, verses 4 through 11, the second half of verse 4 through verse 11. So John 16, that's a 902 of the Pew Bibles. Part of our ongoing series through this book, just that simple. When we put our belief in Jesus, we receive life. John 16, starting at the second half of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will, not, you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word this morning, we pray once again for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We want your help in understanding your word. We ask that we would hear it, understand it, and apply it to our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a neighborhood park with all kinds of playground equipment. They had swings. They had a row of seesaws. They had monkey bars. They had slides. And at the center of the park was a merry-go-round. And all the kids wanted to go on the merry-go-round. In fact, it was a race after school to see who could be the first one to get to the merry-go-round. And they had a game that they played, and they all agreed upon the rules. And it went like this. The first one to get to the merry-go-round would put their shoulder on it and start running as fast as they could and jump on and then make their way to the middle and sit down. And all the other kids would stand around and push the merry-go-round as fast as they could until it, it was going as fast as they could get it going. And then anyone else who wanted to get onto the merry-go-round had to jump on. That was the game. So you would see kids padding and sweating, uh, swatting at the, the merry-go-round and then, and then stop to get their bearings. And they would look and see when the best time to jump on the merry-go-round was going to be. And so sometimes they looked at the one particular spot. There were different colors and so they would look at one color and they would watch it go around and they were trying to time their, their jump. And if it went around and they weren't quite ready, it's okay because it came around again. And finally they, they leapt on and then they too would make their way to the center and take a seat. And that was the goal. The goal was to be in the center of, of the fun, the center of the merry-go-round with the wind in your face and the, the, the other kids cheering and, and pushing you on and just enjoying the ride. Except some didn't. There was always one child that, that didn't want to get on when it was spinning that fast. And so they wouldn't jump and they wouldn't push 
the merry-go-round. And they wanted to get on, but not when it was spinning like that. So they would stand around and kind of whine to the other kids saying, stop pushing, but let it slow down, wait. And of course the other kids didn't listen to them. That wasn't the game. And then finally, it was time to go home for dinner and everyone dispersed. But that was the time for the one person that didn't want to get on earlier for them to get on. And so they would do the same thing. They would get it going as fast as they could and they would jump on. Well, the problem was is immediately after jumping on, it started to slow down. And then they would take their spot in the middle and they would get ready to enjoy the ride. But again, because no one was pushing it, it was slowing down quickly. And so all they could do was sit there and watch the, the park go by for a few lazy rotations until it finally stopped. They missed it. They missed their opportunity to be in the center of the fun with the wind in their face, with the kids cheering, with the centrifugal force pulling at them. They, they missed their opportunity because they waited too long. And in the end, it wasn't all bad news. They could always try again the next day. Or the next. As we get older, we realize that life isn't always like the merry-go-round. Sometimes in life, an opportunity presents itself once. And if we don't take that opportunity, if we don't act on it, it passes us by and it doesn't come around again. There is no tomorrow. There is no the next day. It's gone. I think we've all experienced what it's like to, to have a missed opportunity. I think we've all been there. And they can be summarized with one word. Regret. Regret at missed opportunity. When it comes to following Jesus Christ, the last thing we want to do is have regret. We want to do everything we can to minimize regret when it comes to following Jesus Christ. Well, this morning in John 16, 4 through 11, this passage shows us the disciples missing an opportunity. They missed it. And Jesus calls them out on it. He calls them out on their missed opportunity. He draws attention to it. So we're going to look at what, what that was and what it means. This passage also contains a notoriously difficult passage in John. John 16, 8 through 11. These, this is what is called a tough nut to crack. But we are going to crack it this morning. So we all understand what that passage and those particular verses mean. And then finally... I don't want any of us here this morning to miss the opportunity that's put before us today, and that's to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So let's start at verse 4. This is Jesus calling them out. He says, I did not say these things to you. What things? Everything that just went before. The persecution, the hatred of the world, the fact that... Um, Following Christ is going to be a, a difficult hike in life. We, we covered this last week, those things. He said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus did not think it was necessary over the past three years with his disciples to go into too much detail about the world hating them and the world persecuting them like he did in chapter 15 because he says, I was with you. While Jesus was with them, he was the one being persecuted and hated by the world. 
He was the lightning rod that the Jewish leaders attacked and struck with, with their hatred. But now that he's leaving, they are going to have targets on their back. And he wants them to be prepared for it so they will not fall away. Verse 5 is an observation. Jesus says, Now I am going away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? So this is it. This is him calling them out on their missed opportunity. And careful readers will probably raise a hand of objection here and say, Wait a second, what about John 13, 36? And that states, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And the difficulty is immediately obvious to us. Uh, how can Jesus say, none of you asks me where I'm going, when earlier, that same night, Peter asked that exact question? Well, the answer to that problem is understanding the context and understanding that Jesus knows our hearts. First of all, the context. Remember, everything from 13 through 17 is that last night together. It's the Passover supper and immediately after that before Jesus' arrest. So it's all the same night. And if you remember back from chapter 13, when Jesus told them he was going away from them, Peter's only concern was that they were losing Jesus. The only thing on his mind was, it was expressing shock and dismay that he was going anywhere. If it were up to Peter, he would stay with Jesus forever. And here Jesus says, I'm going away. So he wasn't asking Jesus, to what location are you going to? He's simply saying, why are you going at all? Why are you leaving me? He was concerned about being physically separated from his master. We do this all the time. We see this all the time. Uh, even today, a very easy example would be uh, in the preschool every fall. We have kids that are dropped off for the first time. These are three and four year olds. And they're standing there. And all of a sudden they feel their mom and dad let go of their hand. And their mom and dad lean down and say, bye bye, see you later. And they say, where are you going? They don't really care where they're going. They're just upset and shocked and in panic that they're being left alone in an unfamiliar place with a bunch of strangers. That's the same thing going on here. When Peter said, where are you going? It was not a technical question asking Jesus where he was headed. It was an emotional question expressing grief and shock and panic. And the second part of the answer, Jesus knew that because he knows our hearts. And that's why he can say here in 16.5, none of you asks me where you're going. And the implication is that they should be asking him. That's Jesus calling them out. They have limited time left with Jesus, literally hours. Maybe we could even count it in minutes at this point. And he's saying, you know, you really should be maximizing the time you have left with me. You really should be making the most of this opportunity. Imagine standing next to Jesus, physically standing right next to him, with the ability to ask him anything you wanted to. That's what they had. That was the opportunity they had. And they didn't realize that the gift that was standing before them. So this is the opportunity that would not present itself again. They were not going to have this one-on-one, -on -one, relaxed, friendly conversation time with, with a physically present Jesus. 
Verse 6, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Here's the reason why they're not thinking clearly. Here's the reason why they're missing this opportunity and asking good questions. They're overcome with sorrow. They're so filled with sadness that he's leaving that they're not uh, thinking about asking him direct questions. And how helpful would that be for us? How helpful would that have been if they had asked Jesus some questions about the heavenly realm? If Jesus had spent time answering those questions and they were recorded for us, what is it going to be like after we die and we go and join you in the heavenly realm? Who among us would not want to have more information about what it's like after we die? All of us would. That was the opportunity that they missed out on. And it seems very likely, <clears throat> it seems very likely that they would have looked back on this time with some regret. Maybe we don't fully realize this, but our emotions can also paralyze us from doing the right thing, from acting the right way, from not redeeming the time that God has given us on this earth. We have a a window of opportunity. Our lives are very short comparatively with eternity. And sometimes our emotions can just stop us in our tracks. And we miss opportunities. How often do we willingly or unwillingly allow our emotions to keep us paralyzed from living for Christ the way we should? And, and oftentimes it's the two H's. Um, I'm hurting or this is hard. Those are the two biggies. And that's kind of what they were going through. You're filled with sorrow. This is, this is hard. I don't want you to leave us. I'm hurting. Why would you, why would you leave us and, and be separated from us? They're experiencing both of those H's. I'm hurting and this is hard. And sometimes we get there. We, we say, I'm hurting, so I'm going to go curl up in my cave and just exist. Or this is too hard. I, I don't want to keep going. I give up. Go on without me. Just leave me behind. I'm going to stay here and, and focus on how hard it is. Yes, we're going to have times when things hurt. Yes, this life is going to have some times where it's very hard. That's real. We experience that. And it's okay to go through that. But we can't live there. We can stop there. We can take a break there. We might even have to pitch our tent and, and stay a few nights there, but we can't build our house there. We can't set up resonance on I'm hurting and this is hard. If we make those our address, if we make this is hard or I'm hurting, if we make that our home, we are going to miss the opportunities that God has placed before us. We are going to miss the good works that he has prepared for us in advance to do. Because the, those emotions can be paralyzing. And at the end of our life, we're going to find out that we have regret. And that's the last thing we want when following Christ. We can't camp out there. We, we can go there, but we can't live there. Verse 7, better to go away. Nevertheless, in other words, nevertheless, even though you've, you've missed this opportunity, even though you're, you're so paralyzed by your emotions, you're not seeing 
the opportunity you have. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. As part of God's redemptive plan, he has decreed that the Holy Spirit would not be sent and poured out and fill and indwell believers until after the Son of God was crucified, was buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven. That is just the way God has decreed it. And that's why Jesus says, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. He has to go away first before the Holy Spirit comes. That's just the way God set it up. And Jesus is saying, it's better. It's to your advantage that I go away. And we have to be in agreement with this for a lot of different reasons. Let's just talk about four of them. Four four things that if Jesus did not go away and the Holy Spirit was not sent would, would be real for us. Number one, the real spiritual presence of Christ would not be with every single believer. If Christ was physically present on earth, and the Holy Spirit was not poured out, that we would not have the real spiritual presence. We could go see Jesus. We could go take a visit over to Jerusalem. We could maybe go and have an audience with him or see him from afar as he makes an appearance. But the, the spiritual presence of Christ would not be with every believer. Two, there would not be an opportunity to exercise faith in Christ because, remember, faith is, among other things, things not seen. Well, if we can see Christ, then it's not going to require that much faith Three, the church would not have the spiritual gifts that she does now. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 11. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. It is difficult and depressing, really, to think about what the church would look like absent all spiritual gifts. Think about all the different gifts that Christ has given his church. And if those were not present, what a, what a depressing thought that would be. Number four, Jesus would not be in the heavenly realm as our fully exalted advocate before the Father and our continual intercessor at his right hand. We want that. We need that in Christ. We need the mediator of our covenant of grace advocating for us in his fully exalted state. So it is better that Jesus went away. We could summarize it by saying this. God knows what he's doing. It's better that Jesus went away and that he is not physically present on the earth. And it's been said of these 11 disciples in particular, they they accomplished so much more after Jesus left than when when they did when he was present. Think about that. They, they, They were following him. They did some things, but it's after Jesus left. That's when they really started to shine. If we had four page turns in your Bible to the right, three or four page turns, you get to Acts. It's not just the book of Acts. The name is the Acts of the Apostles. Acts is just one big account of all the different things that the Apostles of Jesus Christ accomplished after he left. So it's a good thing that he went away. Verse 8, here it is. This is the the tough nut. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is part of the reason why we're only taking eight verses this morning. We need to slow it down. Let's make sure we get this. 
These four verses, 8 through 11, have been called the most difficult verses in the Gospel of John. But we want to make sure we understand it so that it never gives us trouble again. And if anybody ever asks you, what is this about? You can tell them this is what it means. So let's take a look at it. What does Jesus mean? Well, the first answer that some people rush to is to think that he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work in the life of believers. And so they say something like, well, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. Uh, It reveals to us the righteousness of Christ. And the Holy Spirit uh, causes us to understand that there is a final judgment. Those things are true. The Holy Spirit does convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit does illuminate scripture. That's why we pray every time we we come to the Lord's word and in the sermon. But that doesn't work. Even though those things are true, that's not what it means here because he uses the phrase, the world. Now, if you've been with us in John, Jesus contrasts two groups, the world and the disciples, the world and his followers, the world and his sheep. That's it. There's, There's only two groups and he always differentiates between his people and the world. And here he says, the world. So verses 8 through 11 are talking about the world, not believers. We have some help. Verses 9 through 11 are an expansion of verse 8. So Jesus kind of unpacks his own saying with the following verses. And we'll attack these one at a time. Whatever he means, we know it has to be applying to the world unbelievers. So verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Well, who's the they? He's talking about the world. So the they has to be unbelievers. And in each case, as as we go through verses 9, 10, and 11, each case this is going to be talking about the world, unbelievers, starting with the current generation of unbelieving Jews that were alive in the first century, but then also extending on out further even up to this time. So it starts there, but it continues on. Concerning sin, because they, the unbelieving world, do not believe in me. So the Holy Spirit, after the ascension and and exaltation of Christ, will convict the world of their sin. So when, when Christ ascends, they will see and understand what they have done in crucifying Jesus Christ. If we fast forward to Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches under the power of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 are converted. They repent and they believe. And Peter directly confronted them with these words, Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's directing their attention to the fact that they are guilty of the sin of crucifying Jesus. And they were convicted convicted, and they repented and believed. So it started with that first generation, but it continues on. And we should also say this, even for those who did not believe, for those that heard the word, they were still convicted of the sin of crucifying the Son of God. They knew what they had done was evil. So it starts with them, it continues on past this generation, the same work of the Holy Spirit convicts people 
Um, when someone hears the, the gospel and, and believe, praise God, they're convicted of, of that sin, of, of rejecting Jesus. But even if they don't believe, they know in their heart it is wrong to reject God. Romans 1 teaches us that unbelievers know God. They suppress the truth. They know it's wrong. They know it's wrong to suppress God. They know it's wrong to keep God at arm's length. They know it's wrong to reject His Son, Jesus Christ. But they suppress that truth. Verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So again, after His resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Again, in Acts 7, when Stephen was giving his account, this kind of historical review of the work of God, and he told the high priest and members of the Sanhedrin that they had betrayed and murdered the righteous one of God, that was the trigger that caused them to be enraged and stone him. They knew what they had done, and they didn't want to be reminded that they had crucified and killed the righteous one of God. So this work of the Holy Spirit continues today. It started there, but it continues today. The Holy Spirit convicts people the truth that they are not righteous. Only God is righteous. Once again, we know, even unbelievers know, even unbelievers know that they are not morally perfect. They have to know that in their heart. But they suppress the truth, or or they explain it in a way, or they believe they're good enough. I may not be perfect, but I'm good enough. You may hear that. Only God is perfectly righteous. And then verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning the judgment of the ruler of this world. Well, who's the ruler of this world? Satan. And how is his judgment made manifest? His overthrow, Christ's victorious um, resurrection from from the grave and his his victory over sin and death. The New Testament links this victory over Satan with the drawing of the nations. We see this in Revelation 23, uh, 20, verse 3, where Satan is bound by Jesus so that the nations are not deceived any longer. So Jesus restrains Satan. The nations are no longer deceived. The gospel can now go forth Prior to the cross, the nations were surrounded and covered in spiritual darkness after the cross. That's Satan's balance. And now the gospel can go forth and make inroads. And we see this. Uh, Here it is in Paul, Acts 26, 17. This is Paul recounting his commission by the resurrected Lord Jesus before Agrippa. The Gentiles to whom I am sending you, this is Jesus speaking to Paul. The Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins at a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the ruler of this world, Satan, is judged by Christ's victory and his power has been limited. And this judgment is made manifest by the ingathering of all people, starting in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, it extends all the way up into to Rome and now to every continent. We see this today. It's manifested everywhere. The ruler of this world has been judged. He's not in control. 
He no longer has the power to deceive nations and keep them in spiritual darkness. The gospel has gone forth to every continent, to the ends of the world. Satan is a defeated enemy. His time is short. And the church will continue to proclaim the gospel and make disciples until Christ returns. I think the best application of this 8 through 11 section is to address a common question. And from the answer to that question, it's going to be both an encouragement to believers and a challenge to unbelievers. So here's the question about verses 8 through 11. And somebody might already be asking this in their own mind. Somebody might be saying, okay, I get it. Um, Christ is victorious. Uh, The Holy Spirit convicts uh, people of sin and the righteousness of Christ. I see the judgment of Satan. I I see the, the Holy Spirit empowering the church to go forward with the gospel. I can see that from scripture. That makes sense to me. Then why does it seem like the church is losing when I look around? If Satan has been bound and judged, then why is there so much evil in the world? If the world has been convicted of their sin and the righteousness of Christ, then why are so many of my neighbors and co-workers unbelievers? If the church is marching forward victoriously, then why does it seem like morality in our country is being flushed down the toilet into the sewer? Because what I'm seeing just doesn't seem to match what this is, this is saying. That's the question. Why does it seem like the church is losing in light of this, this scripture? And here's the answer. It's twofold. Number one, not everyone will be saved. When Jesus sent his disciples out, the expectation was some would be saved and some would not. Some would respond and some would reject. That's the pattern when he sent out the disciples before the cross. That's the pattern when he sent out the disciples after the cross. Not everyone is going to be saved. Some would believe and others would not. The Great Commission tells us to go and make disciples of all nations or all people groups. So yes, we are to go to all people groups. But no, that does not mean that every single person in every single people group will be saved. That's just not true. So the first part of the answer is not everyone will be saved. The second part of the answer is that those that are saved are few in number. Once again, Matthew 7, 13 through 14, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So when we look out upon the landscape of the world, it's not that there are going to be some unbelievers in the world. There's going to be a lot of unbelievers in the world. The world is going to be comprised mainly of unbelievers when at any given time, if we take a snapshot of the world, at any given time, it is going to be predominantly unbelievers. This is what scripture teaches. And this is what we see historically, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and today. Few in numbers. So for believers, we should not be surprised when we see the presence of a lot, many, the majority 
of people in the world being unbelievers and the accompanying evil, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That should not be a surprise to us. But the presence of those things does not mean the church is losing and the world is winning. By God's design, the church will always be a remnant, a minority, a smaller subset of the world. So we should not expect to open our front door in the morning and look out and see our our communities and our cities transformed into Christian utopias here on earth. Every once in a while you hear an overzealous church planter have that as their mission statement. We are going to transform our city for Christ. If you mean reach everyone with the gospel, praise God, I'm all for that. But if you think you're going to convert every single person, um, that's not the mandate, that's not the Great Commission, and that's, that's not reality. The church is steadily advancing, it is proclaiming, it is making disciples, and not one person chosen for salvation will be lost. The whole number will be brought in. Or to put it another way, the church is exactly the right size. The church is exactly the size that Christ wants it to be at any given time. We know that. So the world is going to continue in unbelief and rebellion and wickedness until Christ returns. We're, we're not happy about that. We're grieved by that. But it should not ever lead us to believe that the world is winning and the church is losing. This should be a huge encouragement to believers as we live out our Christian life. The winning team is not the team with the most players. The winning team is the one with the players who have their faith in the only winner, Jesus Christ. That's how it works. So do not be discouraged when you look out upon an unbelieving world. Now for the unbeliever. That answer to the question, remember the question is, why does the church seem like it's losing? And an unbeliever can, can kind of take that stance too. They can hear teaching from the church and read and say, well, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like they're really doing anything. It's been 2,000 years. Shouldn't they be you know, winning by now? And remember, the answer is not everyone will be saved and those who are saved will be few. So the pointed challenge to anyone who might be an unbeliever is this. If you have not yet repented and believed in Jesus Christ, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait for Christianity to become popular. Don't wait for following Jesus and going to church to become the norm in our culture. Don't wait until all your neighbors around you have fully committed to Jesus Christ. Don't wait until state and national governments are encouraging people to read their Bibles and obey its commandments. Don't wait until your teachers and your professors begin teaching creation in Genesis 1 and the flood in Genesis 7 and biblical manhood, womanhood, and marriage. Don't wait for that. Don't wait until you see the nightly news condemning sexual immorality. Don't wait until social media censors and restricts non-Christian content. Don't wait for that. Don't wait until the merry-go-round of following Christ has slowed down so much that you can just step on with no risk. 
because the day that following Christ becomes safe and comfortable and the norm in our world will never come. If you're waiting for the merry-go-round to slow down until it's safe to jump on, you will miss your opportunity to follow Jesus Christ. It's never going to be safe. It's never going to be the in thing or the popular thing. Faithful followers of Jesus Christ will never hold majority stock in the world. It's not going to happen. There will be many people who spend an eternity in hell because they waited too long and they missed their opportunity. And they will experience eternal regret. You can't afford to miss this opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And the good news is, you have that opportunity today. It lies before you. You can repent and believe in Jesus Christ today, right now, and not wait for it to come around again. Believe upon Him. Trust in His work. Trust in His righteousness done on your behalf. Trust in His blood to cover your personal sin. Trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. There is no other way to be made right with God. You must come through the door that is Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, that he has lived the perfectly righteous life, that he willingly went to the cross, that he made atonement for sin, and also that he has risen from the grave has ascended into heaven and is coming again. We thank you that we have an advocate before the Father. Father, we want to live this life that you have given us with the least amount of regret, least amount of regret as possible. So Father, help us to make the most of the time you've given us. And if there's anyone here this morning who has not repented and trusted in Christ, let them seize that opportunity today. In Jesus' name. Amen.